As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. Hi patrons, there are still a few tickets left for our special patrons Q&A with Narelle Fraser in Melbourne in October. If you'd like to come along, you can buy tickets by using the special secret link on our Patreon page. 
You can become a patron if you're not one already by going to patreon.com forward slash Aust True Crime Pod. That's A-U-S-T True Crime Pod and choosing either the two or the $5 a month option. This is also the first episode our patrons have received a day early and ad free. So I hope that feels nice. I hope this feels nice too. The shout outs to Jasmine Nolan, Sophia Weaver, Alison Boyd. These are all our new patrons, you see. Vashti Deguar. God, that's a good name, isn't it? Vashti Deguar. Vashti Deguar. That is what I'm changing my name to if I ever disappear. Florabella style. You know what I mean? Vashti Deguar. That's a good one. Garamia. That is also a good one. Lynette Jane Crompton. Harriet Wisher. Liz Bell. Sarah, just Sarah, Lindy McGregor, Di Coon, Demi Moriarty, Marie Lawler, Emma Woolman, Heather Bucknell, Sarah Diana, Sarah Diana, two first names, is that is that the go? That's fine, that's great. Miranda Krishy and Kerry Langs, thank you so much. Oh, hang on, no, no, it's just another page, still names. Marie Power and Stephanie B, thank you so much for your support. Okay, on with the show. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Tom Lewis lives in Australia now and he has done for quite a while, but he had a long career as an elite officer in the New Zealand police force. He ran the undercover unit, he infiltrated drug trafficking and pedophile rings And he was so highly placed that he was part of the security team entrusted with the life of no less than Her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip when they visited Dunedin in 1981. You probably don't remember much, if anything, about that visit, particularly if you're not from New Zealand and if you weren't alive in 1981. But it was very nearly one of the biggest events in the history of the British royal family for all the wrong reasons. And the fact that we've never heard about it can be put down to the ineptitude, embarrassment and corruption at the highest levels of the New Zealand police force, who knowingly set a psychopath on the loose in Australia and who bear responsibility for the brutal murder of at least one woman. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. We're stretching the definition of Australian here, to be sure. But when one of our listeners by the name of Maria Lewis sent us a message about the time her grandfather was chased out of New Zealand for exposing a plot to assassinate the Queen, we thought it was definitely worth bending the rules. Maria's grandfather, Tom, wrote a book called Cover-Ups and Cop-Outs, in which he laid the whole story out, naming everybody. When they found they couldn't stop the book legally, because everything he wrote was true, the New Zealand police force found other methods of preventing the public from reading it. Both Maria Lewis and her grandfather Tom joined us to tell us this amazing story. And none of it is what I expect from New Zealanders, to be honest. I mean, I think I'm such an idiot. I just think that New Zealand is this utopia, this like perfect paradise where everyone is honest and gentle and perfectly behaved 
I'm shocked that you needed undercover police. I know. I'm half a Kiwi, so Tom will know where my dad's from. Well, there you go. I think everyone's and like Emily in New Zealand, which is really sweet. And well, that's nice. Um, no, look, in every country, New Zealand is basically a very good country, but it also is a police it's a police state almost because of the fact that it's very small and, um, you know, the police um, have sections devoted to getting intelligence on people and politicians aren't immune from that because um, if you've got something on uh, a cabinet minister or something, particularly if he's a minister of police, um, it's very, very handy for the police hierarchy. So that goes through to the hierarchy. And, um, you know, I saw in this thing, uh, which was the um, Chris Lewis case and the subsequent um, connection to it, which was the um, Dunedin Children's Sex Ring Inquiry, I saw there how manipulative the police could be with politicians at first. Uh, yeah, I saw it firsthand. I'm shocked to the back teeth by everything you've just said. I first heard about this incredible event that you were involved in mm. last year and it involved the Queen and it involved this teenager called Chris Lewis. And, and it involves a book that is sitting here right now called Cover-Ups and Cop-Outs that you wrote, Tom, that is we can't buy it anywhere unless we have a lot of money. Because, can I say this? The New New Zealand Police Force bought up every single copy. Well, they didn't get every single copy. What happened was, when it came out, uh, it shot to the top bestseller in the first week. So, and even at that stage, they were going out... Um, buying up as many copies as they could. But in some shops, like uh, a big chain called Whitcoles, they refused to comply and they just kept selling them. So quite a few went out in the first week. I met the assistant commissioner of police, a chap called Paul Fitzharris. He walked up to me in a hotel on a fr- the Friday night after the book was, was released on the Monday. And he said to me, Tom, shook hands with me. I knew him. He said, Tom, make the most of this because your book is going to be gone next week. And I was due to go back to Australia, so I just sort of laughed at him. We chatted away for about a half an hour, and he said, I'll just reiterate, your book won't be around next week. So I just got on the plane and flew out, and I thought, oh, they're going to be buying up a lot of copies. And I forgot all about it. About two weeks later, I got a call from Hodamoa Beckett, who were the biggest publishers in New Zealand, who were the publishers of the book. And um, a, a gentleman there who I knew through sporting contacts who worked for them, he tipped me off as to what had happened. And he said, Sarah Beresford, the publisher, the head publisher, has resigned in disgust. Um, so it soon became apparent this was all true because I was notified then that there'd be no second uh, or third um, oh. print. And it's fascinating because you name names. So they didn't feel confident they could sue you and pull the book that way legally. No. And the other thing was that week I'd been over there on the signing tour with um, one of the publishers from Hodemeyer Beckett and we'd been on national television and they were trying to shut that, all that, and they didn't succeed in all that. So I guess they thought the only way is to get this book out of circulation. Mm. Uh, And then they moved very quickly to go around. Uh, I met... Um, a chap from the West Coast who told me that um, they came in and made him an offer for what he what stock he had left. So not only did they stop the reprint, they then concentrated on going out 
and buying up as many copies as they could. And the fear um, or the the feeling was that, in particular, the case we're going to talk about today, which involved none other than Queen Elizabeth II, why were they so scared of this? And the reason why the book is even more expensive to get online is because there was a big series done by Fairfax in New Zealand, I believe, last year about this case. So tell us about it. Well, to start, we probably really should go back and talk about the perpetrator, Christopher John Lewis. Who uh, isn't related to us, by the way. Like, no our last name is Lewis. But it, anyway, um, where this first started um, was I was um, in charge of the CIS, which was the criminal intelligence section for the New Zealand Police, which ran all undercover operations, um, including surveillance, motor surveillance, foot surveillance, undercover operatives, all of that sort of thing. And we also were put in charge of guarding royalty and um, prominent people. Now, um, I was, on the day that the this alleged offence took place, I was tied up with her personal bodyguards because we were attached to them so that we could recognise any local dissidents. And on the day that that happened, um, we were walking with, I was walking with the Duke and all of a sudden I did recognise a couple of Catholic guys who were radical ex-Irishmen ah, yeah. and they were um, waving to the Duke to come over and they had a girl there with them with a low-cut dress on and that seemed to attract his attention because he <laughs> wandered over um, and we wandered with him of course but as he got near there they handed him a coffin which had the name of Bobby Sands on it, who mm -hmm. who starved himself to death mm -hmm. in prison. Uh, he was an IRA member. So I was tied up with that, and, but I did hear a couple of bangs, um, but I was too tied up with that to sort of associate anything with it. Um, then when we were doing the debrief, a number of journalists, a guy, Oram from Australia, Rob, or I think his name was Oram, O-A-R-A-M, and I think he worked for the Sydney Morning Herald. He came up to me and said to me, hey, they were two shots and your blokes are saying there were no shots. They're saying it was firecrackers. Don't they know? Mm -hmm. Then he had with him a well-known uh, chap. He's still a journalist. He's the oldest journalist in the UK. He was also with them and he had been fired upon while reporting by the IRA and he said I know shots when I hear it so I took them in um, and got them to make statements um, then uh, what happened after that was the royal tour was sort of over but we'd had an armed robbery um, of a savings bank about a week beforehand and we had head of the CIB at that stage, a man who had no detective experience. He hadn't even done a detective course. He was prone to run off on angles. And uh, when this robbery took place, uh, it was there was a shot fired at one of the tellers to make it lie down quickly. And it was quite serious, but the royal tour took precedence. So there was a quick investigation and it was put to the side. We were given the file then. I was given the file by the head of the CIB, who had no detective experience, and he said to me, um, you, you've got all the intelligence in here, we're going nowhere, take it over and see if you can um, come up with some answers. So 
one of the basics of police work is if you don't solve a serious crime in 24 hours, you've got problems. Mm. So if you don't, you go back to the source. So I sent two detectives out to do area inquiries, which had never been done, the basic of police work. While one of them was out, he saw a young guy wearing a, a, met, a flak jacket. Um, now, just to tell you how this um, took place, uh, these guys that burst into this bank were wearing flak jackets armed with automatic rifles and one shot had been fired at a teller to make a move quick, which just went past the side of her ear. So it was quite a violent robbery and they got about $10,000, $20,000, something like that. Which back then, like that's actually yeah. like pretty decent. What haul. year was it? That was 1981. Wow, so a lot yeah. of money. Mm. There was a lot of money then, mm -hmm. yeah. So um, he found this young guy wearing a flak jacket, so he pulled him over and said, uh, why aren't you at school? And he said, oh, I, I, I got out early because um, he was doing something or other. But he noticed that he was starting to shake when he was talking to him and beads of sweat were coming out on his forehead. So he then said to him, I think you better come back to the police station with me. And the boy said, all right. So he got in the car, but he was still very nervous. So he brought him into me and he told me what had happened. Um, outside the door then I went in and spoke to the boy and I could see he was dead right this kid was um, really sweating profusely and he was very nervous he turned out to be the son of a, a, a minister of religion and he went to a high, a high school which was close by that bank so after a brief interview he started to break and he started to tell us what had happened and it turned out that there were three boys, a Geoffrey Rothwell, who's now a solicitor, would you believe, in New Zealand. <laughs> this boy, Paul Tane, is now a minister. And um, there was Chris, they named Christopher John Lewis. Uh, and um, we quickly went, we had nothing on Tane. We pulled up Lewis and he had already uh, been in trouble for attempted murder at the age of 17, he had tried to murder his stepfather by stabbing him when he was asleep in bed. Wow. Um, he had been removed from his home, naturally, and he had been put in um, a youth prison, but he caused so much trouble there that they pre-released him. And he actually was allowed to go and live in a student flat, um, that's a student accommodation, uh, with older students so he's living with a couple of medical students and so when i pulled up this you know we thought oh this isn't uh, someone with potential to to do exactly to corroborate what this kid is saying it sort of progressed from there in that um, the boy told us that the robbery had been well planned by lewis they had burgled a gun shop they'd burgled two quarries they had a number of firearms and they had a num uh, quite a bit of explosives because they intended to either try and blow the queen up and or they were going to kill her by firing a shot at her but the explosives were the secondary thing and we were starting to think yeah, this is you know sounds a bit far out but then of course i was remembering that there'd been these two bangs down at the university museum because how old was this guy you're talking to he was. He would have been sixteen or seventeen. And as he's well. sweating and he's terrified. Mm. So 
Yeah, I mean, I can understand how it sounds a bit far-fetched. He doesn't present as a, an international terrorist. No, when you saw him, he had a very innocent face. He yeah. was a good-looking boy. Then he named this boy Rothwell. We couldn't get anything on him except that his father was a surgeon and they were a well-to-do family. But the Christopher Lewis one was the one that finally got us ringing bells. Where do they know Christopher Lewis from? Do you know? Where, where do the three of them know each other from? School. Oh, um, yeah. so Lewis, was this the school that he was at originally when he was still at home with his parents? Um, no, he got expelled from that school. Um, he was expelled from a number of schools. Right. Um, what happened was... Lewis planned this robbery with a stopwatch and they only had 10 minutes because it was the recess at school, the morning recess. They'd already burgled a gun shop where they got the paramilitary gear from. He had hired a garage nearby this bank where he stored bicycles uh, and he stored their bicycles and the military gear and the rifles. So they had that locked up only about 10 metres now from the actual bank. So what happened in the recesses to the time to the time watch, he and the three of them drove down, quickly changed into the military gear, went, you know, 10, 15 metres up to the bank, robbed it. And when they burst in the door, there were children there banking school money. They dived on the floor when Lewis told them that the bank teller said, oh, there's children here, and he fired at her to get her down. And the only reason she wasn't shot, the other two stopped him. So um, they got 10 thousand plus they got out of that bank and they drove back into the garage just down the road and this is where what made it so well planned they took off all the gear back in the school uniforms again got on their bikes cycling back to school and they saw a police car racing to the scene and it crashed lewis ordered them off their bikes to go and help the police this is how cool this guy is wow yeah so they did they helped push the car back on the street and the police thanked them and then raced off. They got to the school. He checked his watch, and I think they were 45 seconds out, and he wasn't happy with that. Mm-hmm. But, they, but the two boys reminded him. They said, well, if you hadn't stopped and helped the police, made us do that. And he said, oh, okay, guys, that's fine. Now, before all that happened, he had been planning to shoot the Queen, and they'd been privy to that information. So much so that they all went to a deserted beach called Tomahawk Beach, and a man and his son were walking along and Lewis wanted to test the rifle out. So he fired two shots and they stopped because they obviously wondered what the hell was going on. And he wanted to fire again. The other two again stopped him, which was very fortunate. So he had that, but, but he did practice and he altered the sights and they knew he was going to kill the Queen. And that's how Tane subsequently told us in this first interview. Then we got Rothwell in and he corroborated Tane's story. And Lewis, of course, we left to last. Where did you find him? So once you- We you found him at his, that university flat. They oh. call them flats over there, but they have a campus and they have old houses, which they turn into flats. He was there and we executed a search warrant there. And he was Mr. Cool Dude. He said, oh, what are you going? No, no, nothing here, mate. Mm. But it becomes interesting about the psychopathic part of it now, mm. because when we went out, the boys, the other two, Rothwell and Tane, told me that the guns were, they were in a sheets, were soaked in oil, buried in the garden. So we had search warrant for that and the explosives was, I can't remember quite where the explosives, they could have been in the same place. So when I went outside and 
supervise them looking for them. I left one detective inside and Lewis was just sitting down. We probably should have had him handcuffed at that stage, but we didn't. Um, so next thing I get a call on the two-way radio to from the detective going, could I come back inside? So I come back inside and here were two dead mice on a table. And I said, what's going on here? And he said, I'll tell you. What do you want to tell him? He said to Lewis. And Lewis just grinned. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There were two little mice rolling. You know, they climb up those things. Yeah. 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 They were his pet mice. And he said to the cop, he was sitting by the table where they were and he was just twirling them around. He said to the cop, looks like if they find anything out there, I'll be going away for a while. The cop said, I would say so, my friend. And he said, oh, well, these guys will have nowhere to go. So he took them and pulled their heads off <gasps> right in front of the cop. Yeah, the cop witnessed this and he was, the cop was horrified. He, he was oh shaking. And, and so we did handcuff him then. Um, but uh, that gives you some insight to what we knew we were starting to deal with. Yeah. Um, so we had the firearms then. So we took him back and I left him to be interviewed by one of the detectives uh, while well, I went away and spoke to Tane and the other chap and told them we had the guns, that they were telling the truth, so keep on telling the truth, keep telling us the story, it'll be best for you in the long run. Through that. And then I went back to Lewis and he said to me, no one's charged me yet, so I'm getting out of here, man. So he jumped up and tried to walk out and we had to restrain him again. It took quite a while to, when I say that Tane and Rothwell told us the story spontaneously parts of it yes and no but 
they were terrified of Lewis. He did the old thing. It's a bit like religion, isn't it? How religion started where um, millions of years ago, someone said, I want to be head of this group. So he said, there's a guy on the other side of the hill who will, um, if you don't do what I tell you, he will come down and wreak havoc on you. He's so-and-so, like a god. And that's how I think religion started. (laughs) Um, But he used the same method. He said... Um, the snowman is my boss, and the snowman will wipe you guys out. I only have to tell him if you make too many mistakes or you rat on me, you're dead. More about the snowman after the break. Tom's granddaughter, Maria Lewis, who joins us in this episode, is quite a famous author, by the way. Her best selling debut novel is being developed for television by BAFTA winning production company Hoodlum Entertainment. And her new novel, The Wailing Woman, is out in September. Speaking of fictional characters, we left off with Tom introducing us to the snowman. The fictional villain, schoolboy psychopath Christopher John Lewis, invented to frighten his classmates into doing whatever he wanted them to. He said, um, the snowman is my boss and the snowman will wipe you guys out. I only have to tell him, if you make too many mistakes or you rat on me, you're dead. And they kept talking about the snowman, which turned out, of course, to be absolute rubbish. But... um, we had a difficulty getting the story out bit by bit. So so he invented like a big boss, a big scary... Yes, and it reminded me of, oh. you know, that scenario, how religion started. Wow. Yeah. So he invented that and he really had it instilled into them. So when I'm talking about getting this information from them, it was taking hours actually, but mm. to, to expedite this, um, we did, were getting, getting there gradually. Uh, so... Once we had everything from them, I went. We went in about the Queen, and it all. He denied everything, of course, initially, as they do. But then it almost seemed like he was trying to tell me how clever he was, and that was great for me because I fed on his ego then. And we've gradually got the story out of him about how he had planned to kill her, and it was it was done again with meticulous preparation. He had a plan A and a plan B. And unbeknown to him, we'd already found his plans at the flat, at his flat where he was staying. But we didn't know what to make of them because they were sort of... It seemed like the plan to shoot the Queen, but the way he had it drawn up, you had to talk to him about it. But once he saw we had that, he I think he thought we knew more than we did, so he, he opened up a bit. And it was very well planned, he worked out that there was a building with a doorway which was back from everybody and it looked straight down where she was walking through the centre of the city. Now, um, it would have given him a clear downhill firing line. He went into this building with a, a bag that cricketers carry for their bats and he had his rifle in that. So he went up on the steps and the door was just there. The, everyone was out on the street below him. So everyone was looking down. So he knew that. So he took the rifle out. He was just about to take aim. In fact, to use his term, he said, I was only a finger twitch away from splattering it. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a finger twitch away. I'll never forget that. 
And he said that she, he said, I said, so what were you aiming at? Her body or her head? He said, oh no, the hat. He said it was pretty, she had a big, I think it was a green or yellow hat. Um, so ironically, I read not long ago that the Queen always does that, and that's her thing. She always wears a bright coloured coat and hat so that everyone in the crowd knows that they have seen her. Mm. Yeah, so it's unmistakable that they right. have seen her that day. In fact, even her coats, you'll notice the same. Yeah, yeah very mm, bright. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, what happened was, as he as he looked down, two uniform police walked past, but they were both looking down too. So no one was seeing. So he just got the rifle out, about to virtually shoot her and they walk right into his line of fire and then they stop joking they accidentally blocked it they accidentally blocked oh my exactly. god yep. and so he, he was ropeable yeah this is a guy that lost it pretty quick and it was just lucky he didn't go mad and start mm, you know god. But anyway he had plan b which um put the rifle back in he knew where she was going to next now that rothwell's father was a surgeon and Lewis had been up into his dental surgery. He was head of the dental school. That's, and he had been up there with Rothwell. So that was plan B, was to go up there and go to the toilet because he knew the toilet looked down on the reserve where she was to go that afternoon. Mm. So he got on his cycle with his rifle, cycled there, positioned himself in the toilet so that when she arrived, he had a clear shot at her. Now, he didn't get the clear shot he wanted, really, because as she alighted from the car, all people crowded all around her. Mm. But he still tried to shoot her because he could see the hat. And he had, I think, one or two. He says two. The police say one. But you can't take any notice of what the police say because they never even did ballistic tests on those guns because they wanted to play the whole thing down. So he then cycled there. And when she arrived about an hour later, he was. that's when he made the second attempt. And that's the ones when I was getting the coffin off those guys wow. that I heard wow. and that everyone heard down in the university. Um, I'm suddenly overcome with grief, I have to say, at the realisation of how many times that woman has had rifles pointed at her head and not known it. That was one day in her yeah. life in New Zealand in, New Zealand. in 1981. In Dunedin as well. Yeah. Dunedin. <laughs> That we don't, yeah, didn't, I didn't know about until just now. Yeah. I just think, my God, how many, how many times others? in her life? Yep. Yeah. Well, this is where the cover-up comes in. Okay, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Because it was slack. It was yeah. the, the guy who was supposed to write up the orders for that operation mm. for the local town of Dunedin was the head of the CIB who had had no training at all as a detective he wasn't capable of doing that in fact he looked like basil forty so his name was his name was dalzell so the troops all called him dazzle forty because he walked like basil and he, he was a bit of an idiot to put it mildly and uh, so yeah so he had then this is how new zealand is sort of a police state this gives you a, it's down the level a bit but he had a guy as his second in command called John Kelly. Now, John Kelly was infamous because he was a detective senior, a detective sergeant in Wellington, and he indecently he groped a policewoman yeah. who was the daughter of a prominent policeman, and she was she was in the police bar having a drink, and he groped her quite seriously. But instead of being charged with indecent assault as they do, they just 
send him back to the uniform branch under supervision. Mm. Now, Dazzle 40, he decided that Kelly was redeemable because he wanted someone in Dunedin because Kelly, in a way, was very good. He had a university education. He was very good at doing orders, so command orders. So what happened was he brought him to Dunedin and then promoted him back to detective sergeant. So Kelly was the one who did the orders and they were terrible. They didn't, we didn't have, even have snipers on roofs. Oh, we didn't even have people on roofs to watch out for snipers on That's roofs. That's it. How can yeah. this guy get, you know, go up to this doorway and yeah. just point yeah. a rifle at yeah. the Queen's so head? So there was no, like, risk plan crazy. per se. There or... should have been. Yeah. yeah. But the orders they drew, it looked great on paper. Yeah. It was screeds of paper, but none of it made sense. Mm. They were relying more or less on us people down there being that were attached to her uh, bodyguards, royal bodyguards, because mm. we were all heav heavily armed. So... They had nobody on the roofs, nobody looking down. That was the key to it. There was no one looking down. So this chap, Kelly and Basil Forty, or Dazzle Forty, as we called him, they were the two who actually were, were to organise the local intelligence and draw up the local orders. Yeah. And then you hand them to the palace guards, MI5 and those people that were attached, that were walking down with us, and they approved them. Now, New Zealand being such an easygoing place, just like you and you think, mm. once they used to get to New Zealand, they used to become a bit blasé and leave a lot to the local cops, as I knew from being in charge of the CIS. But on this occasion, it didn't come out good. No. So. so what happens once you realise, OK, this is how close we came, I guess it's your responsibility to tell them. Yeah, now that's when it gets, um, that's when it gets interesting because we want to know how far were the palace involved in this. And how far were MI5? Did they take Lewis out because of this? And there's also one of the detectives that were, was doing the interviews with me on that night. Um, he was the most outspoken of all when they covered it up, a guy called Tony Harrod. He had a strange death. He was about a thousand kilometres away from Dunedin, his hometown, and he was allegedly retrieving cannabis in a helicopter. So I imagine they were pulling it up. I don't know if, if that's what they were doing. But he fell out to his death. And very mysteriously, there's only one witness. Um, oh. He was a lot more outspoken than Tom. Like, Tom's, you know, known for being... He obviously wrote a book about it, but this guy was, like, very publicly always talking about the layers of corruption involved, how deep the cover-up went, all the people, like, politicians, officers public officials, everything that were involved. There was a reason for his um, him being upset, and quite rightly so, because he would have been quite famous. He actually signed, I got him to sign as the arresting officer for Lewis. Hmm. So he would have been quite famous in the end because Lewis was facing a charge of attempted treason and treason, both hmm. of which carried the death penalty. So and, what happened? So why, why was it hushed up? Well, what happened next was... Um, over the next few days when we'd arrested Lewis and, and now this is where I've got lots of corroboration why they could never have sued me because Yeah, why isn't this a huge international story? Where is this episode of The Crown, for example? <laughs> well, what happened next was that um, it becomes interesting because I had a lot of dealings with Lewis's lawyer then mm. and The Crown solicitor in Dunedin 
who was a um, he was the highest ranking army officer, ex army officer from World War Two, and a highly ex, um, experienced man and highly respected Dennis L. Wood. Um, now, Christopher Lewis's lawyer corroborates everything I say. That's mm. one of the reasons they've never been able to take me to court. I had two hours sleep and then I came back in again for Lewis to appear in court. Now, you must be reminded that we only charged him with the Anderson's Bay robbery then because um, that was nothing compared to what he was going to be charged mm -hmm. with. I then had to liaise with the Crown Solicitor and say, well, this is what we've got. And he said straight away, okay, first charge treason, backup charge attempted treason. So Lewis's lawyer was there, his name Murray Hannon, Murray J. Hannon. He was then told to expect to be defending those two charges. And these other charges were holding charges and he would be charged with that as well. They're very serious charges. Then for the next day or so, I was in constant contact drawing up the charges with the Crown Solicitor. Then I got a visit from the, our friend Dazzle Faulty, who said to me, look, Mr Lewis, you've been uh, working through the night and all this. I hear you're running a marathon. And I said, yes, next week. And he said, um, oh, look, take a few days off and go and run your marathon, relax, and then come back and we'll get onto this. We've got a week's remand and we can do all this. He doesn't appear in court for another week. So I thought, well, that's quite good. So I went and got ready for the marathon, ran the marathon, and then came back to work. Oh, great. Now what, what's <laughs> yeah. happened while you've been away? <laughs> well, what happened was I we did a surveillance course. So I wasn't in the station for um, a few days, but on from the Monday to the Friday, we were doing the surveillance course, which I was supervising, so I wasn't there. On the Friday, I came in and went to the police bar for a drink. The two detectives that were working with me on that case asked to see me. And they said to me, what's going on? Glad you're back, but what's going on? We've been taken off the case. I said, oh, is that right? And they said, we think you have too. So uh, I went and I met up with Kelly. And I t mentioned this to Kelly. I said, are you going to give me back that file? When are you going to give it back to me? Because I'm back at work now. And he said, oh, yeah, I'll have to talk to you about that. There's a few things we need to chat about. About a half an hour later, I get a dazzle. Faulty comes and says to me, come up to my office. Uh, I need to see you urgently. So I go up to his office and he said to me, look, this is well above you. It's well above me. It's all political now. He's not going to be charged with a treason or attempted treason. I've just had Muldoon on the phone um, and the commissioner. And the commissioner's name was Robert J. Walton at that stage. Now, he later corroborates also what I say. So um, they were up against it when it came to trying to cry me down. Anyway, at that stage, Walton apparently was saying from through Muldoon, and Dalzell told me Muldoon spoke to him direct, this is bigger than all you guys in the police. This could have huge ramifications from New Zealand. We'll be the joke of Fleet Street. We've got to calm this down if we can. He didn't hit a Let's just make it that, that he did, what can we do? So they come up with this oh, discharge. Which you can understand on paper because it's like, you know, the Queen nearly got assassinated by a 17-year-old schoolboy. Yeah, in New Zealand. In New Zealand. And, it yeah. would look terrible for them. And, uh, you know, he was 20 metres away from, that's how cocky, 20 to 25, mm. and he had a clear shot to her. Uh, it. It was to her. And even then, after that, being thwarted accidentally, 
he's then able to nearly succeed again. Mm. Uh, so, there would be a lot of questions yeah. asked. Oh, there would be a lot yeah. of questions. And it was going to be a lot of questions of her royal bodyguard. Show um, how vulnerable she yeah. is. And yeah. yeah. I, look, you know what? I get all of that, but it's sort of not the point, is oh, it's it? Not the point. <laughs> it's not the point. It's sort of not the point. I mean, if we ran every crime and every criminal through the filter of, well, you know, I can sort of see how it's inconvenient. <laughs> Let's not. I yeah. mean, where would we be? Well, the, right? ramif the ramifications were huge yeah. because later on they had to give him... When she came back to New Zealand, he was out and about and oh, so they girl. gave him a trip. Oh, they took him and his girlfriend overseas <sighs> at taxpayers' expense because it was Choggam and they... They just knew they couldn't control it. Oh, my, God. So oh my they, gosh. And that's all in They there. sent him yeah. to the Great Barrier Reef for a holiday in Australia while the Queen was... Yeah. In New Zealand again, because they they so, didn't have any guarantee that they were going to be able to control him, and so eventually, when the book came out, they admitted that this is a man who was eventually imprisoned for the murder of a 27 year old Auckland mother of three, Tanya Furlan, whom he beat to death with a hammer. And his they got they, into the prison. Well, that came from a prison officer, I think, who told the girlfriend or told someone that there'd been two. British guys there um, and they were there with a couple of guys from the New Zealand police earlier in the day. Now also earlier in the day Christopher Lewis received a visit from his lawyer and that publisher and that publisher's name is Ian Wishart who's a lawyer himself but he owns a publishing firm in New Zealand called Howling at the Moon and he knew he had a good story because he was going to write Lewis's life story. Uh, so he, they had visited him and only left a couple of hours earlier and they said Lewis was talking to them as though about the next visit and the next instalment mm. he was writing of the book when they could get it. The other thing was that that lawyer, um, they knew, the police and that, that Lewis was pleading not guilty to Tanya Furlon's murder mm -hmm. and he said he was going, he'd alleged he was going to tell all about all the protection he'd had over the years. And um, so, you know, when you look at that and you look at what his girlfriend said and was told, you'd have to be deeply suspicious. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.